Hey, we're back, or I'm back with another episode of the Unuseful Idiots. And uh, today, you know, being that the third presidential debate is coming up in a couple of days, and we've seen a couple of the, you know, lesser-known people drop out. I wanted to delve a little deeper into some of the topics that are actually being discussed, you know, primarily among a bunch of the main candidates, and, you know, I want to give you more of a perspective on what's actually going on behind what they're saying and whether it works or not. So, um, we're going to start out here. There's an article in Forbes uh, talking about, you know, one of, one of the big things in uh, the candidates' platforms has been healthcare. There has been a big push for various types of Medicare for all. You know, some candidates want a full Medicare, full universal health care with no private insurance. Some want, I guess, a more a system more like Canada where there is some private insurance. And I've made it pretty clear that I don't think, I mean, that that would, it wouldn't work. Um, I've given a bunch of examples on how it hasn't worked. And there was an article in Forbes recently, and the title was Britain's version of Medicare for All is struggling with long waits for care. So, which is pretty much what I've been saying. I've been saying that this is the main thing that people have to realize. It's that, yeah, probably people who, people in those countries who aren't sick are probably fine. You know, when you, when people say, oh, it's, you know, I talked to this person and they said, healthcare is fine over there, healthcare works over there. You're probably, most of the time, you're probably speaking to 
people who are relatively healthy and don't have a specific need to get treated quickly. So, you know, they, they're fine. And the other thing you have to consider is that most people have never lived, have only ever lived in one country. So, unless you've lived outside of a socialized healthcare system, you don't know the difference. So, you know, you you don't have anything to compare it to. You're not going to... I mean, how can you... Even if something's bad... People aren't really going to complain if they don't know of a system that's better. And, you know, I mean, I, I kind of feel like most of the time you only hear the negatives about something. So you don't really... But I'll get into the article. The article starts out, it goes, nearly a quarter of a million British patients have been waiting more than six months to receive planned medical treatment from the National Health Service, according to a recent report from the Royal College of Surgeons. More than 36,000 have been in treatment queues for nine months or more. Okay, so nearly a quarter of a million of British patients. Now, and then it says over 36,000 people have been in, in treatment queues or lines waiting list for at least nine months. I mean, a lot can go wrong in nine months. You know, if you're sick, there are a lot of illnesses, you know, I mean, anything, you know. A lot of illnesses, if you don't get it treated right away, even routine illnesses, can get worse and worse and worse if it doesn't get treated right away. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to have to risk waiting on a list for nine months. I mean, that that's kind of ridiculous. Like, if even if you have a flu or what seems like a routine cold, without going to the doctor, you know, I mean, yeah, a routine cold, you're like, well, let it play out. But, you know, there are plenty of times where a routine cold 
turns into something else. And then if you don't, or, you know, the flu, there are plenty of cases where people get the flu and they end up hospitalized. But if you have to wait and then you don't get treated, you know, you could die. Like, I I don't understand. So, but it goes into more detail. It goes, so, it says, consider how long it takes to get care at an emergency room in Britain. Government data shows that hospitals in England saw only 84.2% of patients within four hours in February. That's well below the country's goal of treating 95% of patients within four hours, a target the NHS hasn't hit since 2015. Now, if you go to the emergency room, you're pretty, you're in pretty bad shape. You know, most people, I mean, yeah, you hear about, like, I don't know, people who go to the emergency room because they don't have any money or, you know, whatever. But for the most part, the people who go to an emergency room have a legitimate emergency and, you know, uh, and they get in, they break a bone, they get in a car crash, they uh, uh, have a, a wound, a stab wound, or, a, you know, a non-fatal stab wound, a non-fatal gunshot wound, you know, whatever. And saying... Over 17% of people are waiting for over four hours. You know, things can get a lot worse in four hours. Yeah. I mean, if you have an open wound. So, I mean, you know, listen, I'm sure in this country... There are certain hospitals where it's a similar situation, but at least, you know, there are, at least it's not a government reason and those hospitals could improve. And there's not as much red tape going on. But, I mean, it's just not, um, I don't, it's, I mean, I don't, it's just not, I, I can't imagine how people still want, 
or after learning this stuff, how you could still want uh, nationalized healthcare. Because this doesn't sound good at all. And here's another thing. So, it says, wait times for cancer treatment where timeliness can be a matter of life or death are also far too lengthy. According to January NHS England data, almost 25% of cancer patients didn't start treatment on time despite an urgent referral from the, by their primary care doctor. That's the worst performance since records began in 2009. Now, I mean, this has been what I've been talking about. You know, if you have cancer or anything like cancer, I'm sure it's not just cancer where this is an issue. I'm sure it's many other things that are life and death situations. If you're not starting treatment on time, you know, there are many times when you have to start treatment right away. And if you don't start treatment right away, uh, you know, your situation's kind of screwed. Or, you know, every day you don't start treatment, your chances of a full recovery are diminished. So, or whatever recovery are diminished. And I don't know, that's not acceptable to me. Like, I... I mean, I can't do that. Like, I can't... So, it says, and keep in mind that on time for the NHS, it's already 60 days af- 62 days after a file. So, that right there, they're on time... It's already way too long. You know, there are plenty of times when you go into um, you get diagnosed and your doctor says you know, you have to start treatment in a week. That's seven days, not 62 days. 62 days is two months. So, uh, and that's what they consider on time. So not on time, you're pushing three months, maybe four months. You know, people could die by then. So, I don't know. I mean, it's just not... I don't know, it's not acceptable to me. And then it goes on to say, 
Unsurprisingly, British cancer patients far fare worse than the than in the United States. Only eighty one percent of breast cancer patients in the United Kingdom live at least five years after diagnosis, compared to the eighty nine percent in the U.S. Just eighty three percent of patients in the U.K. Live five years after prostate diag- uh, cancer diagnosis versus 97% here in America. Now, that's ridiculous to me. Like, you know, I can't, I don't know the numbers on like what. First of all, we have far more people in the US, so. Each percentage in the U.S. is, I don't, you know, many more people. I don't know the numbers of cancer patients, whatever. But either way, you know, you. I think it's fair to assume there are many more people with cancer in the U.S. than in uh, Britain because the population is a lot higher than in Britain. So, you know, that's 8% for breast cancer, an 8% difference for breast cancer, and a 14% difference for prostate cancer. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Like, you're talking about... You're talking about two first-world countries. I mean, it's it's just unacceptable, and you know this is this is what you this is what we've heard in the first two debates. One of the big things is what kind of Medicare for all works better. You know, pretty much everyone on the Democratic debate stage is for some kind of Medicare for all plan. Whether they're really for that or they're just saying that, I have a feeling that a bunch of the candidates on stage are just saying that because they think that'll get them the Democrat votes. Because I think that's a big topic amongst, you know, young progressives and they're kind of driving the party lately. But, I mean, this article does a pretty good job of summing up why, uh, you know, it's just unacceptable. And... So, I mean, uh, I'll link to this article in the notes, and, uh, I mean, you can uh, read the article in depth and, you know, come up to your conclusions, but, um, yeah, so, and then... This next article, you know, it 
it sort of touches on, you know, we, we kind of do have a universal healthcare system in this country. You know, it's a very small subgroup of healthcare, but, you know, our veterans' affairs, our veterans' um, healthcare is, you know, for people who come back, and that's nationalized. I mean, that's, that's sort of, I think it's probably safe to say that what goes on in veterans' affairs is probably pretty similar to what we would see on a national scale if healthcare was nationalized. So, this is just a uh, one uh, tidbit, I guess, or not, but one example of what goes on in Veterans Affairs. And the article's from the Washington Post, and it's how Veterans Affairs failed to stop a pathologist who misdiagnosed 3,000 cases. So, I mean, this, this is a, actually a good thing, right? a good example. You know, if you have a nationalized healthcare service where doctors are being paid by the hour and not by, I mean, they, they get a salary based on sort of, you know, just not based on anything. Like, they, you see patients and, like, it doesn't matter how many patients you see, like, You know, they just get paid. And, you know, you're gonna be, they're gonna want you to see as many patients as possible. You know, there's pathologists, pathologists diagnose you, and, you know, they're, they're not treating you like in the last article with the, NHS in Britain, they're just, they're not treating you. They're just saying this is wrong, you know. And in Veterans Affairs, this is how it works. They, they send you to the pathologist, the pathologist diagnose you, then you go on to get whatever health care you need. So, it goes... By the time he and his wife, Sarah, faced Veterans Affairs medical staff across a conference table in September, Kelly Copeland had lost 75 pounds and could swallow only small pieces of solid food. 
Radiation therapy had blistered his throat. This was the moment they would finally learn why their lives were so were so changed. Why, when he went to the Fayetteville VA three years earlier with a severe earache, the biopsy came back negative, and he was given antibiotics instead of treatment for what was diagnosed 13 months later as late-stage neck and throat cancer. The pathologist, who had misdiagnosed Copeland's disease tissue in 2015, was intoxicated. The hospital's chief physician told the couple he had failed to see the the squamous cell carcinoma on the slide before him, the doctor said. We are so sorry, Copeland uh, remembers him saying. Solving the retired Air Force Master Sergeant said he had asked whether he would be suffering this much if the cancer had been caught before he was stage four, with tumors spread to both sides of his face. The treatment would have been the same, doctors told him, stopping short of answering his question directly. So, you know, maybe it's not, you know, this, the doctor was intoxicated, so maybe, but, you know, in a, either way, they would be missed. Like, diagnoses get missed all the time, or misdiagnosed all the time, and it happens, you know, the, the difference is that in a system where the doctors have, you know, uh, in a free market, doctors are more invested in their patients because, you know, they have to be. Otherwise, they're going to get bad recommendations. You know, they... they a lot of doctors get by on referrals. You know, if they're a good doctor, they get referred to by a bunch of people. Like if you're, if you have, uh, if you, I don't know, if you break your arm and you're asking around to a bunch of people that say, you know, I broke my arm, where should I go to get it fixed? Who knows? People are going to refer you to good doctors. And, uh, you know, if a doctor has a misdiagnosis on his record or her record, you know, they're not going to 
get referred to by uh, whoever. So, I mean, this this is a situation in a national, which Veterans Affairs is, in a national healthcare system, you know, you don't really get a choice of your doctor. So, yeah, maybe this guy gets fired, but who's to say the next guy, you know, it's not based on, like, when you go to any, it's, I mean, medical care is a service, pretty much, I mean, and if the doctor isn't providing you good service, you don't go to that doctor anymore. You go to a different doctor. But under a universal healthcare system, you don't really have that option. You know, you're sort of... I mean, we see how... You know, they were talking about the wait times in Britain. You know, in this country, the reason, yeah, you know, technically, if you want to go to a specific doctor and you only want to go to that doctor and that doctor happens to be in high demand or only works a couple of days a week, you know, yeah, you could be waiting a while to go to that doctor. But if you're in need of a doctor right away, you can go to any doctor and get treated. So, you know, there's always going to be a doctor, but in the national healthcare system, that's not what, that's, you don't have an option. So, I mean, I'll link to this article too. And, I mean, it's just, like I've been saying this whole time, it's not a good system. It's just not. And... You know, I've talked about before that kid from Britain who had uh, cancer, had terminal cancer, and he was denied a new treatment or something. He was denied treatment, and the Vatican City wanted to pay for him or was willing to pay for him to get treatment in the States, and the NHS denied that, and the kid died. So, I mean, that's an extreme case, but I don't know. Is it really? I mean, maybe it's just, maybe it happens more, and maybe this case just was brought to light because the Vatican City got involved and 
I mean, it just... And there are plenty of stories. Like, you... I mean, the thing is, you have to talk to... When you go to country, first of all, you have to... You can't really judge what they say in the news, because what they say in the news, you know, they're asking healthy people, they're asking not that sick people, or like I was saying before, they're asking people who have no idea of a separate, of a different system, and they've grown up with the system their whole life. So, if something's not worse than what they're used to, they say, yeah, it's pretty good. So, that's why, like, you have to talk to people and see and ask questions about, like, well, ask specific questions about, like, well, do you have a choice of a doctor? Like, how long do you have to wait? I mean, they talk about, like, wait times for MRIs. The MRIs are a pretty big deal if you have... You know, there are a lot of diagnoses that... Uh, are um, are discovered through an MRI that aren't detectable on, you know, a regular x-ray or a CAT scan or something. So, I mean, there's all kinds of things. It's, I guess, what I'm saying is it's more in-depth. You have to... It's more complicated than just some poll saying, you know, the healthcare, people like healthcare in England, or people like the healthcare system in France. You know, there's, there's more you have to deal with. And you have to listen to first-hand accounts of what, what's going on there. And, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of uh, first-hand accounts of people telling stories about what goes on there. And, listen, maybe they're perfectly... Maybe it's first-hand accounts of people who are perfectly happy because, like I said, that's all they know. But... You know, just because they're happy and they think it's fine doesn't mean it is. Like, we've lived under a semi-free market system and we know what that semi-free market system is like. So, I don't like, just, to me, the answer isn't going more towards the government aspect of it. It's going more towards the free market aspect of it. And, uh, ah, this country is not 
hasn't been doing that. So, uh, I don't know. But, so, this was interesting also, and it's, it's still, uh, it's getting away from healthcare, but it's still relatable to something that is pretty relevant within these uh, debates and the presidential candidates. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, he, he always talks about how great these Scandinavian countries are and how great what they're doing over there is and how their socialist systems are the way we should go. And this is this article is from Investors Business Daily and it's Denmark tells Bernie Sanders Sanders it's had enough with his enough of his socialist slurs. So, you know, Bernie Sanders whenever he talks on stage and you know wants to talk about universal health care or you know, standard of living or equality of pay or whatever, you know, crazy socialist agenda he wants to push. He always brings up Denmark or Sweden or Norway or these, and, you know, like, I think, I guess most people think of them as socialist countries. I don't know. But, so, the article says, The Danes apparently have grown weary of Senator Bernie Sanders insulting their country. Denmark is not a socialist nation, says its prime minister. It has a market economy. Sanders, the Democratic presidential candidate who calls himself a socialist, has used Denmark as the prime example of the socialist utopia he wants to create in America. During the Democrats' first debate last month, uh, he said we should look to countries like Denmark, like Sweden and Norway, and learn from what they have accomplished for their working people. So, and then he said, while appearing in New Hampshire in September, Sanders said that he had talked to a guy from Denmark who told him that in Denmark, it is very hard to become very, very rich, but it's all but it's pretty hard to be very, very poor. And that makes a lot of sense to me. But like 
just because something makes sense to you doesn't mean, you know, everyone else likes it, or, like, and just because it makes sense to you doesn't mean there aren't underlying things going doesn't mean that there's not more underneath the surface. So, uh, this is about Danes being offended by Sanders using the word socialist to describe the, their form of government. And who can, uh, yeah, so... You know, it says, and who can blame them, especially when the free world has had enough of national socialists like the so and Soviet socialists and North Korean socialists and Cuban socialists. Right. Like, those are the real socialist governments. Like, you know, Soviet Union, uh, North Korea, Cuba... Even China, like, I mean, we'll get into this later, but, you know, China's still a socialist government. You know, yeah, they've opened up a little more, but, you know, the, the next article touches on that. But, so, then it says, uh... While speaking at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, the center-right Danish Prime Minister Lars Loki Rasmussen said he was aware that some people in the U.S. associate the Nordic model of, with some sort of socialism. Therefore, I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. The Nordic model is an expanded welfare state which provides a high level of security to its citizens. But he also noted that it is a successful market economy with much, more, with much freedom to pursue your dreams and live your life as you wish. Now, this is a good thing. Like... This is a good thing to touch on because a lot of these countries, the Scandinavian countries, they had very free markets in the earlier part of the of the twentieth century, and they became a very rich country, and. Then they started to offer these welfare programs and started taxing people very high. So they had a lot of stockpiled wealth to draw. And... So, and they've also uh, 
they also don't have a lot of the restrictions on doing business in that we do in this country. So a lot of people can still start businesses and stuff. And, you know, not, I mean, we can start businesses too, but they have a lot more freedom over there. And they actually, the Scandinavian countries actually rank at the top of the freedom index. And the U.S. not so much. So that sort of tells you something right there. But the Freedom Index really has nothing to do with, you know, what the welfare of of the country. But like we saw with Finland, actually, the Finland government is, you know, sort of done. Like, they're, and, you know, their economy collapsed, or is collapsing. So, maybe collapsing, I don't know. But they're, they're not doing as well. And a lot of, actually, a lot of these countries, like Norway, I think, is... They're starting to roll back some of their welfare programs because, you know, the wealth they had stockpiled, they're running out of. So sort of of like what's going on with our um, Social Security, you know, because... You know, sort of what happens is that, uh, like, you, uh, I, I don't know how to explain it, but in a way that doesn't sound mean, but, I mean, Well, what's going on with the Social Security, basically, is that there are are a lot more older people moving into Social Security age and getting that Social Security than there are people working. So there's no, like, replenishment. Or the replenishment isn't at the same rate. So, uh, you know, social social security is going to run out. And this is, so what's happening in those countries, like Norway, where they're rolling back on the welfare, is that they're realizing that they're running out of money. And really the only way to do that, to stop that is for those countries is to sort of roll back the welfare state so they're not spending money at such a high rate. You know, makes sense. But I mean, it's I'll, uh, I'll link to this article too so you know, use 
can read it for yourself, but just keep it in mind when you hear about what's going on in these countries, or not in these countries, but when uh, people like Bernie Sanders or whoever is talking about, you know, high tax, you know, whatever they want to talk about. And just just keep in mind that it's not as great as everyone makes it out to be. And, I mean, the better way would be to allow people to do it on their own. Just, you know, help people out. I mean, you know, there is, you know, then the GoFundMe, the, the, the CEO of GoFundMe said two-thirds of their, uh, you know, whatever, their campaigns are for medical, uh, medical campaigns and I mean they're getting funded so to me that's an example of how the free market works and that people will be taken care of even if there isn't even if people, the government doesn't need to be involved, basically, as far as healthcare goes. So that's all I want to say about that. Then um, this next article. Is about, uh, it's from the Hill, and it says, and Bernie Sanders says, well, actually, I'll, I'm not going to read the headline, because the headline's a little misleading, but, so, So, this is what it said. The first paragraph, it says, Senator Bernie Sanders offered praise for China while stating in an interview that he believed the U.S. could have a positive relationship within, with the country, China, saying it had made more progress in addressing extreme poverty than any country in the history of the, of civilization. Uh, not exactly. Uh, well, I'll, I'll hold off on. I'll read a little more. Democratic presidential candidate offered a nuanced view of Beijing criticizing it for a move toward authoritarianism and stating that it looked 
out for its own interest first, but also saying that it had made more progress, it had made progress in helping its own people over the last several decades. China is a country that is moving, unfortunately, in a more authoritarian way in a number of directions, Sanders told Hill.TV's Crystal Ball. But what we have to say about China, in fairness to China and its leadership, is if I'm not mistaken, they have made more progress in addressing extreme poverty than any country in the history of civilization. So they've done a lot of things for their people. Uh, Yeah, you're wrong. First of all, no, they have. You know, I mean, if they have, why do you hear about the nets around, you know, surrounding the building, the factories in China to prevent people from jumping and committing suicide? Why do you hear about all the poverty and the sweatshops for kids? Like, I mean, like, come on. Are you really that stupid? I mean, like, I don't know. This this is just... Maybe he's being taken out of context, but I don't think so. Like, I I don't know. These are pretty bad uh, quotes here. If you think China has done more to get people out of poverty, like, you know, yeah, China has you know, allowed for, you know, they're not strictly uh, socialist, or they're not strictly communist anymore. They do have some um, production of goods, like, yeah, Huawei, which makes a great product, from what I hear, And we have Alibaba, which is, you know, like the Chinese equivalent of uh, Amazon. But, you know, we still have all this stuff. You hear about sweatshops in China and how they got paid very little and how, you know... You always hear about people complaining about how our manufacturing jobs are getting shipped to China because in China they only pay people $2 a day or whatever. But first of all, the cost of living in China is a lot less. But second of all, The government also doesn't, you know, they're not, China, they're still in poverty, basically. That's, that's the point. You know, people, you know, maybe in Beijing, people aren't in 
poverty anymore. But in most of China, people are still in pretty bad poverty. You know, people aren't living... Let, let's put it this way. Probably, yeah. Probably people that would be considered upper middle class in China are probably living worse than low middle, low, you know, higher, high lower class here. Maybe even low, low, I don't know, but I mean, listen, they still say. What is it? I think if you make thirty thousand dollars a year, you're still you're in the top one percent in the world. So, which listen, I don't know. I mean, I would assume that the majority of people in China are not making thirty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. I mean, you hear all about, but, you know, so basically, like, I don't know, this is just so ridiculous to me, like, that he can say China has done more for getting people out of poverty than the U.S. has. I mean, the U.S., you know, in the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s and into the 1900s, that's what lifted people out of poverty. You know, people were working, kids had to work in factories in this country before modern machinery was invented and, you know, farming and everything has been made easier in this country by, uh, and lifted people out of poverty. You know, so this country has done more to lift people out of poverty than any other country. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And for anything that, for, you know, anytime people say, like, you know, the only reason kids aren't working in factories today is because of the government requiring kids to be in school or whatever, no, that's not it, because... Other, and then, then families would still be struggling to make money. The reason kids aren't working anymore is because families don't have to have their kids work. That's why. You know, the people make... All, even the poorest people... I mean, maybe not the poorest people, but... You know, I mean, someone, I don't know how to say it, but 
you know, people making, people are making enough money that they don't have to allow, have their kids work, and it's because, you know, modern machinery, basically, the free markets, the innovation, it's all that stuff, and I, so, but, and then there, there's an article in Market Watch talking about, uh, sort of basically just talking about how the uh, how we can reduce health care costs without Medicare for all. And I'm just gonna link that article in the show in the description. I'm not gonna go into the article because I mean, you know, there's, there may be reasons to link, you know, there's some truth to it, but it's more just a way of, you know, we don't need, like, it's, you know, it talks about, like, LASIK surgery, for example. Like, LASIK surgery is a... Something that's not really covered by health insurance. So, uh, you know, people who get LASIK surgery generally pay out of pocket. I think LASIK surgery is covered by insurance if, like, there's a medical condition, like, uh, you know, like an accident or something. There's certain circumstances where LASIK surgery is covered by insurance, kind of like um, plastic surgery. Plastic surgery, you know, generally isn't covered by insurance, but if it's due to, like, an accident or an illness, you know, like, something... There are certain cases where it's covered by insurance, but generally not. So, but it talks about how... So, I don't know, I'll just... Actually, I will. I'll read these two paragraphs. So it says... By contrast, there is intense competition among the providers of medical services like LASIK eye surgery that aren't covered by health insurance. For those procedures, procedures, providers must compete for market share and profits by figuring out ways to improve efficiency and lower prices. They must also advertise to get customers in the door and must ensure high quality to generate customer loyalty and benefits from word of mouth. 
So that's sort of like what I was saying about the doctors. You know, if they screw up, people aren't going to refer to them anymore. So, you know, it's sort of the same thing. And it says, that's why the price of LASIK eye surgery, as just one example, has fallen so dramatically even as quality has soared. Adjusted for inflation, LASIK cost nearly $4,000 per eye when it made its debut in the 1990s. These days, the average price is around $2,000 per eye. And you can get it done for as little as $1,000 on sale. So, and like they said, this is with inflation. So with inflation, or, I mean, so costs without inflation, costs have been cut by 50%. With inflation... You know, I don't know what $4,000 in the 90s is today. Let's say it's 4500 So that's over 50%. You know, that's, um, that's like uh, 60%, I think. So... You know, this is just one example of, and I'm sure they they get into more of why. But, so like I said, I'll link to the article. You can read it if you want to. And basically, the idea is just, you know, if you want better products for cheaper prices or better services for cheaper prices, you got to increase the competition. That's the only way to do it. Because even as the cost to the company gets cheaper, if there's no reason for them to decrease prices, they're not. Why would they? Like, you know, it's, you know, a good example is uh, the prescription drug industry. You know, why, if there's no competition to a drug, why would they need to lower the cost? So, you know, I'm just going to, I'll leave that there and, and, um, so this is the last article. Uh, this, this was an interesting article that came up, came up a couple of weeks ago or was written a couple of weeks ago. I saw it a couple of days ago. Or actually, no, what am I saying? It was printed a couple of, or actually today, 
Yeah. Today it was printed. It was written a couple of days ago. But it was printed in today's edition. I don't know. Whatever. It came out on the 5th. September 5th. So, you know, marijuana has been a big topic the last couple of years. And rightfully so, the legalization of marijuana. We talked about it on this podcast. And basically, you know, why, I mean, we'll get into uh, this article. This article is actually calling for, says Mexico wants to decriminalize all drugs and negotiate with the U.S. to do the same. So, I mean, we, we've talked, Noah and I have talked about this on the podcast a bunch. And, you know, uh, why not? You know, like, like I always say, if you're not harming anybody, you know, other, if you're not harming other people, who cares what you do? That's basically what it comes down to, right? You know, that's essentially what the non-aggression principle is. You know, you know, you could do whatever you want as long as you're not harming anyone. And uh, that extends to drugs. Like, why shouldn't you be able to do to smoke marijuana or do whatever and as long as you're not harming anyone, it's fine. So like, you know, we see Portugal did this where they legalize everything. Every every drug is legal in Portugal. And Overdoses got, went down. All kinds of stuff went down. You know, uh, and crime went down. So I don't see a negative to this. And I mean, actually, like so. This is actually one of, uh, so actually I'll read the first couple of paragraphs here. Mexico's president released a new plan last week that called for radical reform to the nation's drug laws and negotiating with the United States to to take similar steps. The plan put forward by the administration of the of President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador 
often referred to by his initials as AMLO, calls for decriminalizing illegal drugs and transferring funding for combating the illicit substances to pay for treatment programs instead. It points to failure to the failure of the drug of the decades long international war on drugs and calls for negotiating with the international community and specifically the US to ensure the new strategy's success. He said the policy proposal is the war on drugs has escalated the public health problem posed by currently banning by currently banned substances to a public safety crisis. And so the which came as part of AMLO's national development plan for 2019 to 2024 Mexico's current prohibition strategy is unsustainable, it argued. So, yeah, basically he's saying what a lot of people who are for decriminalizing all drugs have been saying for a long time is that you know, whether while you may be scared of what legalizing dangerous drugs like cocaine or crack or heroin or meth, you know, whatever dangerous drugs you're thinking about, having them illegal having them remain illegal is what's fueling the majority of gang violence and a lot of other violence. And basically that it being illegal has led to more issues than it's solved. You know, like throwing, locking people in cages who really haven't done any harm to people. I mean, like, I, you know, what I always bring up is prohibition. The prohibition of alcohol did not work. It lasted for... I don't know exactly how long, but however long it lasted, all it did was create problems. It put, it elevated the mafia. You know, the mafia took control. They were, they took control of the underground black market for alcohol and increase the violence because, you know, if you're, you know, 
it's a black market and you're buying and you don't want competition. So you're already committing one crime, so why not commit another crime and another crime and another crime and another crime. So basically, you know, you're you're trying to eliminate competition in the black market and you're you're kind of willing to do a lot of things. So, and this is sort of the same thing that's going on with the the illegal drug market. It's a prohibition on drugs. You know, that's what it comes down to. And it's just not working. It, it's never worked. But, you know, for whatever reason, people believed it. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know why. Listen, you know, I, I mean, look, with marijuana, it was reefer madness. People bought into reefer madness. I don't know why people bought into it because, you know, it was probably just not many people did it. I don't know. You know, I mean, I can get into, like, the whole history and um, theories about what was going on back then, but I'm not really going to right now. Um, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, so, basically, this is a great idea. We would drastically reduce the gang violence, because gang violence is basically over drugs. You know, they sell drugs. That's how they survive. Or they make a living. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure they, I'm sure, you know, you decriminalize drugs and you allow it to be sold in a lot of places. You allow stores to sell it. I'm sure gangs would find something else to sell. But just because they would find something else to do doesn't mean, you know, we should ignore the legalization of drugs. Like, it, I don't know. It's, it's just, like, so... Basically, so then he goes on to say, The war on drugs has been extremely costly, not just in terms of government resources, but also human lives, and it has failed to accomplish its, its objective, he explained. The prohibition policies have, by and large, caused more harm to people and communities than the drugs they were intended to eliminate. 
and they haven't come anywhere close to eliminating the supply or the demand. That's pretty much what I was saying. You know, people will still find a way, just like with alcohol, people will find a way to get it. And, you know, especially with something that's natural and grown naturally, which a lot of drugs are, you know, you'll you'll find a way to get it. Like, marijuana is grown naturally, and it's pretty easy to grow it and hide it, and it's just, unfortunately... It's the people who are willing to do things to do bad things to protect it, to protect their livelihoods. They're the ones who are taking the risks now. And, I mean, if you eliminate that that risk for, that they're taking, you know, the more people would be doing it and they would be doing it legitimately and there would be less violence and I mean the one thing I'll I would say is that you know at the beginning he said um where where was it? Uh Uh, here. So he said, calls for decriminalizing illegal drugs and transferring funding from combating the illicit substances to pay for medical for treatment programs instead. That's the only thing I would have an issue with. And I would say, no, you don't transfer the funding and from combating into helping pay for treatment programs, what you do is instead of using those funds to combat treatment programs, you give that money back to the people. So basically reducing taxes. So I don't know what, I don't know how to quantify it, but Let's say everyone, let's say 3% of your taxes go towards com- combating the war on drugs and paying for treatment and whatever. Whatever, let's say everything that is linked to the war on drugs every person pays 3% per, three of every person's taxes goes towards that. Okay, so give people the, that 3% of their money back. That's, that's it. Simple as that. Just end the war on drugs, give people their money back, and that way... Uh, 
you're not forcing people to pay for other people. They don't know their treatment. And, you know, the reality is a lot of people can't afford to, you know, even if they wanted to pay for other people's treatment, help, you know, they just can't. So give people their money back. And that way, in the future, down the line, maybe they can help out people. But they'd be doing it voluntarily. That's the point. And, I mean, it's just as simple as that. I mean, that that's pretty much... You know, everything involving taxes... That's what it comes down to for me. It's that, you know, the people in this country are struggling enough as it is. So why not give people their money back and, you know, let them, you know, I'm... There are plenty of people who would use that money. I mean, the perfect example I keep thinking of is, I mean, this isn't really a tax issue, but it's related because it involves people needing money and sort of, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. You know, the the thing with uh, last election with Bernie Sanders, when he was asked by this woman at a town hall about uh, the fact that under, that she wanted to open up a fourth, She's uh she owns hair salons, basically. And she wanted to open up another hair salon and you know, expand her business. The problem was is that in order to do so, she would be uh, moving past the she would be hiring more than she would be moving past the number of employees that the threshold and being and be required to pay for her employees' health care under Obamacare. Under the Affordable Care Act, it says, I think the number is 55. If you're a company that has 55 55 employees or more, you have to provide health care for them. So she basically said to Bernie Sanders, like, I want to open up a fourth hair salon and expand my business, but... Under Obamacare, I would have to 
pay for all my employees' health care, and I can't do that. I can't afford it. Now, you know, I mean, yeah, she probably, uh, hair salons don't make a lot of money, so, you know, you have 55 employees or more, you know, you can't be required, I mean, how many, no, probably, I don't know what, how much you would have to pay for uh, insurance and that. I don't know, what is it? A hundred thousand, probably more. I mean, it's not less than two thousand dollars a year for someone. It, so a couple of hundred thousand dollars you're paying, and you know maybe you're bringing in a couple of hundred thousand dollars. So basically, all your profits are going towards paying for insurance then you can't pay in your employees. So, you know, it, and basically Bernie Sanders was like, well, don't open up that fourth hair salon. But, you know, that's just, that's, that goes against the American dream. Like, that, you know, it's just, so basically that would be the same thing as you know, why, uh, you know, how the taxes, how taxes in this country can prohibit people from doing things that they want to do. You know, whether it's because it, you know, I, I don't know, for many reasons. I mean, you know, it's just the fact that people have, that the majority of this country has less than $1,000 in the bank, you know. So, giving back, of, you know, their taxes, you know, even if it's only a couple of percent, that would help them out a lot. So, you know, it's... I think that's a much better solution to anything that I don't basically anything that we can save money on rather than allocate reallocating that money to somewhere else, we should just give the money back to the people and reduce taxes because you know, while every while the example we always hear is, oh, the rich getting richer and blah blah blah. The reality is, while the rich may get richer, the not rich also get richer. So, I mean, if the not rich are getting richer, I'm okay with the richer getting richer. The rich getting richer, like, that argument never made sense to me. So, uh, I'm going to wrap it up there. 
I'll be doing a debate recap next time for the, no, I think it's on Thursday or whatever. So, uh, I'll do that recap. I mean, it's not going to be a very good debate. I mean, I think I'm going to spend the time talking about how the DNC is screwing people over again and bringing what... I mean, it's just at this point, everyone up there is talking about the same thing and you know, they're they're excluding Tulsi Gabbard from this debate and Marianne Williamson who is there, you know, I mean you know, I don't think she offers anything but she's sure she's definitely good for one liners to or something like just for entertainment value. She's good. So uh you know, I think I'll probably talk about that a bunch in the recap. You know, I'm, I'm sure there will be something that someone says that, you know, is worth talking about. But uh, until next time, you know, you guys know what to do. You know, we're on Facebook like us there, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Minds. Uh, if you have any questions or suggestions for an article or that we should read or something, you know, theunusefulidiots at gmail.com, you can email us there. Uh, you know, Patreon, you know, if you like what we're doing, you like the content, and you want to help us grow, you could give us a dollar, give us some money, whatever you can afford. Uh, Patreon.com slash the unuseful idiots. Go there if you you can get uh, producer credits. We'll put you in the show notes. And, I mean, that's pretty cool. You can call yourself a producer. So, but even if you can't afford to give us some money, you can support us by uh, subscribing to the podcast wherever you listen to the podcast. Uh, rate the podcast, give us a five-star rating, give us a review, comment on the podcast, and, you know, that's what really helps us out on the, uh, you know, move us up the charts, get us noticed, and so, uh, until next time, guys, see ya.